Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. She said on a pain scale of 1 to 10, she was at a 15. And then after taking Creative within 30 minutes, she said her pain was down to a 4. Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. Last time, you heard about Adrian's struggle with opioid addiction, how she overcame it, and how important Crotum is to her life now. This is part three of our series on Crotum. If you haven't heard the last two parts, you'll want to check those out first to understand exactly what Crotum is. Crotum has been making headlines in the U.S. recently, but not necessarily for the reasons its advocates would like. On February 6th, the FDA released a statement declaring that Crotum contains naturally occurring plant alkaloid chemicals that are predicted by computer models to be opioids. These computer models have not been made available to the public. They also referenced 44 reports of fatalities where Crotum components were present in the bodies of the individuals. The FDA's first warning against Crotum came last November when they said the substance is a safety hazard and holds the potential for abuse. When the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency announced plans in 2016 to classify two components of Crotum as having high abuse potential and no medical utility, there was such a backlash from the public and Congress that they rescinded the plan. During a comment period afterwards, the DEA received over 20,000 comments about Crotum, 99% of which were positive. Some points made by critics of the FDA's recent statement include, Safety conclusions were made without considering the impact if Crotum were banned. If there were in fact some negative cases involving Crotum, what about the millions of people who say their well-being depends on the substance? They seem to ignore many years of published scientific data. And they claimed Crotum had no medical benefits, yet no proper clinical trial has been done. Sentiments such as these were echoed in a letter on February 8th, sent to Kellyanne Conway, counselor to the president, and Robert Patterson, acting administrator at the DEA. It was signed by nine medical professionals from the U.S. and Canada. They believe that the current body of credible research demonstrates that Crotum is not dangerously addictive, nor is it similar to narcotics like opioids with respect to addiction and death, as the FDA stated. Surveys have indicated that for many, Crotum is serving as a lifeline away from strong, dangerous opioids for millions of Americans. Banning the substance would put them at risk of relapse, with the potential consequence of overdose or death. Their letter goes on to explain more about their findings on Crotum, and also refutes the FDA's claims about deaths linked to Crotum, suggesting that these claims cannot be supported by any reasonable scientific or medical standard. They occurred in a wide variety of people suffering from various diseases and or taking other substances at the same time. The belief of these professionals and advocates for Crotum is that existing science does not justify the substance being placed on any schedule or controlled substances list that would prevent consumer access. They're encouraging continued lawful access to Crotum 
with balanced regulation, proper research, and protecting rather than harming public health. You can read the full letter along with the FDA's statement by checking the show notes for this episode at StandUpSpeakUpBlog.com. Here on Stand Up Speak Up, we aim to address every topic objectively. But as an advocate for social wellness and ending addiction, and after talking to experts and users of Crotum and hearing their stories, we're certainly perplexed by the stance the U.S. government is taking. As a reminder, here in Canada right now, licensed vendors are allowed to sell Crotum, but it has not been approved for ingestion. It can only be sold for aromatherapy purposes. We hope that by continuing to highlight the stories of Crotum users, we can join the fight for proper research, balanced regulation, and keeping it available to those who need it in all parts of the world. Now on to today's episode. Since part one of our series on Crotum was released, we've had a huge response on Facebook and our podcast page, with people telling amazing stories of how Crotum changed their lives. We'll share some of those stories in a bit, but first, our guest Josh shares his story. Josh is now a Crotum vendor based in Colorado. He knows the ins and outs of the plant, what it takes to sell a quality, safe product, and tells us what he's learned from selling to hundreds of customers. Josh's childhood was relatively normal. He joined the military at the age of 18, but serious trouble started after he was discharged and sent to a military prison for selling drugs. He eventually became addicted to opiates, was in and out of jail, and even spent four years in a maximum security prison. Now we'll hear about Josh's life from the beginning and the challenges he overcame to finally create the life he wanted. My mom and dad had divorced when I was about 12. We lived with my mom, and I mean, it was not an easy childhood, but she worked, she provided for us. We went to school, and I mean, that was about it. Nothing nothing crazy was happening. Uh, did good in school. I had two younger brothers that, you know, did all right. And then when I turned 18, I went to the Army. Pretty, pretty uneventful childhood. Your dad, did you maintain a relationship with your dad? I did not. There was a lot of problems there. He was an alcoholic and a drug addict, and that's why my mom left. And we didn't talk to him much, especially after the divorce, like hardly any at all. At least I didn't. Did he ever get help? I mean, are you in contact with him now? He actually passed away from a drug overdose, I think his 50th birthday. I was actually 18 and like three months into the Army. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry to hear that. Was that... Were you surprised at that, or was that an expected result based on his lifestyle? I was not surprised one bit. I mean, when the, the Army chaplain called me into his office, I knew what he was going to tell me, and it didn't phase me at all. I, it didn't make me sad. It didn't make me mad. I just I knew what was happening, and there was no feelings, no hard feelings, no bad feelings. It was just what I knew was happening. Who was your dad before his addiction? I don't remember. I don't know. The childhood growing up with him, I mean, it was, you know, like I said, he was an alcoholic and always angry, always mad, always fighting, and just stayed away from him. And your mom, what kind of childhood did she have? I know that her real father died when she was young. Her mother remarried. He was a really good guy. I think she has seven siblings, and he took care of them like they were his kids. Uh, you know, there was hard times sometimes, and I know she, in high school and stuff, she partied, had fun, and then met my dad. But I don't think there was any, you know, real troubles or traumas in her childhood. So do you think that's why it was perhaps why she left him? Because she 
she had grown up in a pretty stable environment. So she knew that how he was behaving was wrong. Because a lot of times people don't leave, you know, they stick around. She stuck around with it for a while. Just, I think, I don't think that was it. I think it was just too much. I mean, he couldn't change. He wasn't a good person and she just didn't want to deal with it anymore. There were times when he was either physically or mentally abusive. And it just was something that all of us wanted away from. And it took her years to be able to get away from that. I've not tried to block it out. I've just tried to, I mean, that's what it was. I've accepted it. I've been past that all the way through that. And I mean, that was, that was a long time ago. And I try not to to dwell on or let that make me who I am now for a long time after I, in my twenties, in, even into my thirties, I tried to be the exact opposite of him. And it's not that I think he was this terrible guy. I just think that he had no self-control whatsoever in the drugs, alcohol, whatever else just completely ruined him. And I try not to hold it against him, my childhood, anything, because that's, that's over with. Did you guys both get addicted to the same type of drugs? What, what was his drug of choice? I know alcohol was a huge part of it, but for drugs, I don't know. I believe from the overdose, it was heroin and cocaine. But I mean, there was, there was no communication between us two. So I, I really have no idea. So you go off to the military. How was that experience? It was good. Like I said, I mean, from the childhood and stuff, I didn't, I had never personally done drugs or alcohol until I was 18. I mean, I never drank, I never smoked, I never done anything. Then I went to the military, did good for a while, but it was a completely different environment. I mean, people were partying, people were drinking, people were doing everything. And that was the first time I was, you know, ever around it and actually participated in it was in the Army. So do you think that the Army kind of opened those those doors that you were kind of like you had something in you genetically that was already attracted to to vices like drugs and drinking and the army just made it more accessible or more more accepted to experiment and try things out absolutely i think so and i mean even if i didn't go to the army it may have still happened because of the you know just the city we lived in but absolutely the army i can't blame it on them but it made it just where it was available and i was around those types of people all the time so how long were you in the military for the army I was in for four years, almost four years. And did you go to on any, did you ever leave the country, go to missions or? I joined in 98 and there wasn't a whole lot going on then. And I was stationed in Hawaii. And I mean, Hawaii, that's another bad thing. Hawaii was known as like the party station. I mean, if you got sent to Hawaii, a lot of guys ended up in the same situation I was in just because of the environment in Hawaii. So was it, you got everything paid for, I guess, in the army, like your, your housing. So all your, all your salary can go to partying and having fun. What would you say? That's kind of, yeah. So everybody just spends. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Okay. So what made you decide you wanted to leave the army? What was that? (laughs) Well, that's, that's where it started. Um, Like I said, the army opened up a lot of things and I started, we all started partying, going, you know, to raves, whatever. The first experiences with drugs that I participated in were party drugs, like ecstasy or acid or something like that. And it was just the whole the whole atmosphere of that party scene. And I ended up selling ecstasy to a military police. I was court-martialed, uh, sent to a year in a military prison, and 
a, dis- or a bad conduct discharge from the Army. Do you think that the military set you up in that? They knew that people were selling it and it was a sting type operation or? Oh, it absolutely was. It was absolutely a setup. But the thing that, I mean, I, I was pretty far into it and what I was doing was wrong. I mean, I was, you know, supplying other army people with ecstasy or acid or whatever. And a couple guys weren't liking it. They knew. They told the, the military police, and they did a sting operation and set me up. Now, how did you decide to get into that side of things? I mean, did you meet a contact that was also in the Army? Or, like, how, does that, how did that even manifest into being your first business? <laughs> it was just a different kind of lifestyle. I mean, the little small Indiana town, you know, like I said, we moved around a lot because my dad couldn't keep a job. I never really had a set group of friends. But some of those guys I went to basic training with, I went to AIT with, I was stationed in Hawaii with, I knew them well. We all got involved in that. And I just liked the lifestyle. I liked the, you know, I knew how to get to the ecstasy. I knew the people that wanted it. And it was just an extra source of income. I had the friends, the girls, the, it was just a party scene. And I liked that because that was something I was, I was never around growing up. Like I said, I didn't have a lot of friends. We moved a lot. So being able to have that group of people that I felt like were my friends and then also be able to have fun and make extra money, it was just a lifestyle that I liked. Okay, so you get caught. How was that phone call to your mom? I'm trying, It's been so long. It was 2002, I believe. Um, the military police, they came and arrested me in the middle of the day in front of my whole company of like 75 people. And I mean, I knew what they were doing. I knew what had happened and they took me to the brig. And I, I believe I sat there for a day or two before I actually told my mom what happened. Were you scared to tell your mom? But yeah, yeah. I mean, she didn't well because I mainly went to the military because that's something, you know, my mom, you know, we had the bad childhood. She wanted me to be successful, be, you know, in the military, do something good. And I completely let her down. She wasn't really angry, you no know, more than just let down like I was. So how did you feel being the older brother? And The same way that I let them down, just like I let my mom down or let myself down. And then being discharged from the Army for doing that, I mean, it stuck with me for a very long time. I would say 10, 12 years. I mean, it still bothered me. It still bothers me now, but it's so long I've let it go. But it bothered me for a very long time that I was discharged from the Army for doing that. So what was it like to go into the jail? How is it different than, I mean, I guess... I don't know if you know what, how different it would be, but what's, what is a military jail like? It was a naval brig, and it was very boring. Uh, kind of still military-ruled, but just not as, you know, they would try to make you shine your boots and get up and do your exercise and PT and stuff, but most of the people didn't do it. So you just sat on your bunk all day. I mean, you literally sat on your bunk all day, and they wouldn't even let you off. You just sat there. Sometimes they, they wouldn't have a TV. They didn't have books. You just sat there for hours and hours a day. How did you not go completely insane? Or, or did you start to lose your sanity in that time? No. Um, no. I mean, there were still other guys in there that, you know, kind of did the same thing. So, we you know, we became friends. And, you I mean, there's not much you can do about it. You just deal with it. We did get wreck. So we could go work out at the gym usually every night for an hour or two. And it just, I mean, you just deal with it. There's not much you can do. There were people that it broke down, but if you broke down, then you would be put into a, like a solitary cell by yourself. And that is so much worse than being in a 
group of 30 people. So, you know, unless you're really breaking down and can't handle it, then you would rather not be in that cell by yourself. Did you have any external volunteers come in that would do things with you guys? I mean, like, was there anything to look forward to? Like, what were some of the activities that you could have had to go besides working out? Uh, we could play cards sometimes, like on the weekends, they would have the, the movie. One thing about it, I, the judge and everyone could tell that I was young, could tell that I was messed up, even though I had done wrong. What they could have done to me and what they actually done are two different things. I think it was a total of 80-something years that I could have been sentenced to, but I ended up being sentenced to one year. So, I mean, I knew that I'd been in the Army for three years. I mean, 12 months wasn't that long of a thing. So it wasn't. You know, like the end of the world, it was just 12 months and I would be done. How slow did time go? Like, did it feel like five years by the end of it or? Not really. I mean, it, it didn't go fast, but it, it wasn't terribly painfully slow, no. Like, I think one of the hardest times that I'm listening to your story and I'm thinking, I'm reflecting, you know, on myself, I would be so scared to be alone with my thoughts for 24 hours a day. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I would be so scared what I could tell myself, talk myself into of, feeling like I'm a shitty person. Yeah, there's more to the story. I think we'll, we'll wait till we get more to the timeline of it. But I was also incarcerated in a maximum security prison for over four years. Okay, so you, it was different in that next step. So this one was almost like your learning curve. <laughs> Did you kind of get yeah, yeah. a feel for how it all works? Right. I mean, in hindsight, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, learning about how this whole system works. But it, it, it wasn't a terrible experience. Okay. I mean, it, it could have been a lot worse. So, and it, it did get worse. So you get out, and what's the first thing you do when you get out? What was What is the one thing you really looked forward to? I was just being back with my family, uh, my mom and my brothers. And, you know, she had met a new guy, and he had already got me a, a nice job set up. And I just got out and started working. And so what was the job that you started to do? Uh, heating and cooling, installing furnaces and ductwork uh, for new homes in Indiana. And so he trained you, like apprenticed you on how to do all that? Yes. So was he kind of like a father figure? Was that really welcome at that time or was it hard for you to accept? No, it was just more like a friend. Definitely not a father figure, just a friend. You know, it was my mom's friend. He was helping me out. I was learning. I was glad to be home and, and just went with it. And did you meet anyone at this time? Were you, did you have a girlfriend or fall in love or? No, not right when I got out. No, my younger brother, my, the middle brother, you know, me and him kind of, I was seven years older than him. So growing up, they're a year apart. I'm seven or eight years older than them. So, you know, we didn't really, we weren't really, really close as like they, them two were. Uh, when I got back, me and the, the middle brother started hanging out more and come to find out, you know, he was kind of doing the lifestyle that I was doing in the army, except with the party drugs, it was the opiates. And that's where where my opiates come in. And so did you, how did you try to advise him in that whole lifestyle? Or were you still kind of excited about that lifestyle? And that's the thing. I was still looking forward to that. I mean, I, I missed the money. I missed the friends. I missed the lifestyle. And you know, it, it felt like an opportunity to do it again, unfortunately. And do it with your, you know, your brother, who's become, I guess, more like a, a best friend in this whole thing. And 
And it, yes. just, and it felt probably more comforting a little bit that you could kind of show them how things work. I mean, was there a type of that brotherly advice? Absolutely. Unfortunately, yes. And what was your mom? Was your mom aware of any of this? You know, and like I said, this small town, even now it's been ravaged by opiates. And when I got out, you know, some people take Vicodins, whatever, not a big deal. But it, it quickly, within a year or two, I mean, everyone was using opiates and not Vicodins. We were, I mean, pretty much everyone except my youngest brother were using Oxycontin. Even the guy that had helped get the job. Oh, so your mom's boyfriend. And what about your mom? How was she doing? Um, I mean, she was doing good. But like I said, she was also, you know, we were all doing that. Now, how did your mom get a prescription? Like, how did that end up that she started using? Was it a lot of people, you could get prescription really easy? This is goes to all the pill mills and the pharmaceutical companies um, supplying small towns with opiates. And, I mean, you could go to a doctor, tell them, you know, I, my knee hurts. They would give you some Vicodins. You go back a month later, say the Vicodins aren't working. They would give you Oxycontin. I mean, you could get Oxycontin anywhere. It wasn't something you had to worry about. I mean, they were literally everywhere. So the family would have like a family prescription almost that everybody would be. My mom did a prescription, but this, this goes back to me where I would source it and I would buy large quantities of these pills for, you know, half price. And then I would sell it to other people, including my mom and my brother. How do prescription meds get sourced? I mean, are they actual from like the manufacturers or pharmaceuticals or are they? No, they were the real actual OC Oxycontin. And like I said, I mean, I just watched a documentary on TV a couple of days ago about a company called McKesson and they supply opiates and you know, there was a, a cap for each city. So a cap, just random numbers, could have a thousand prescriptions. But the McKesson would up that. So instead of having a cap at a thousand, if that city or the pharmacies in that city needed 2,000, McKesson would up that cap to where they could get 2,000 prescriptions. So, I mean, literally, you could go to any doctor and get whatever you wanted. Um, there were even guys that if you paid him a couple hundred dollars, they would tell you which doctor to go to, what to say to him, and then you could walk out with a prescription for Oxycontin. And they may start a 20 milligram Oxycontin, and within two months, you could have a prescription of 180 milligram or 180 80 milligram Oxycontin, and everyone done it. Do you think that the doctors or medical professionals are aware of what the situation is, is, are they? I think some of them were like, if you could pay someone to find out which doctors would prescribe you those, the high milligram opiates. And I, I mean, the, they knew what they were doing. Absolutely. And another big place to get them from was unfortunately the VA. Uh, one of my, I would call him a friend, but one of the guys that I got my pills from when I resold them, uh, he got hits from the VA. He would get every month, a couple hundred Oxycontin, 80 milligrams in the mail. And he didn't like him. He didn't want them. And he would just sell them. What would he make a month off of that? Him, he would sell his for around 40 or 50. And then I would almost double it. Are you saying per pill? Yes, per pill. An 80 milligram Oxycontin, yeah, was somewhere between 60 and $80 for street value. So how do all these people that are addicted and can't keep jobs, how are they paying 
that kind of money to get the pills? What I did was sold pills. I mean, I, I, I didn't, you know, there, I had that good job, but once I started doing the pills, you know, I quit going to work because I didn't need to, I didn't want to, and I just sold the pills and made a living doing that. Other people, you know, once your addiction gets so bad, you know, you can't really keep doing that. I mean, you're going to either run out of money, run out of pills, do something to lose a connection. And I mean, people steal stuff. I knew a guy that that's what he'd done every night from midnight to three in the morning would go around to garages, go around to houses and just steal things and either pawn them or sell them to other people or whatever. People would do whatever, whatever was needed to, to get the money. It, it didn't really matter. Or you would just rob the person that had the pills. And how many pills were you up to a day? How much did your habit cost you? I, I was doing almost 400 milligrams of Oxycontin a day. So that's like five pills a day? Yeah, yeah, around there, yeah. So that habit would cost you 200 bucks? Yeah, but I mean, I also sold the pills. So the way I looked at it was it I could make mine for free and then still make enough money to buy more and also pay whatever few bills that I had. And would you give discount to your family? I mean, would they get it for cost? I mean, other different people would pay a different price, yes. So at what point were you like, this is getting out of control? Or did you ever think like that? I thought, I thought that quite often. In the very beginning, I mean, probably the first six months to a year, I never thought that because I liked the lifestyle. And I had never been, I mean, like I said, in the Army, I was never addicted to opiates or anything like that. Probably a year into, I realized that it was out of control, that I couldn't stop, that if I, I didn't have that much, I would feel bad in the morning. I didn't want to get up or I, I wouldn't get up. I would lay in bed. Or if I didn't have the money, you know, what would I have to do to get the money to get that? And I, 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 yes, it got very out of control. And were you taking care of yourself, like going to the gym or did all that go by the wayside? Not taking care of myself at all. And was your mom, who, who was the one that was kind of like, wow, maybe we all need to stop or maybe this is getting out of control? You know, I, I mean, I, I think everyone knew that it was out of control, including my mom and my my brothers, but it's not something that you can just stop. I mean, I, I knew what I was wrong and I knew I wanted to stop and I couldn't stop. I mean, it's pretty frustrating to think that all these doctors prescribe all this stuff when they know the ramifications. I mean, it's all over the news because it's still happening today. You and I both know it. there's a million towns like this today still this happening. Right, but this goes back to the pharmaceutical companies. I try not to get into stories like this because people either don't believe it or don't want to hear it. But the people that made Oxycontin, I think it's their last name, Sackler, the Sackler family, they did all these studies and all this stuff to prove that Oxycontin was not addictive. And so they got the doctors, all the pharmaceutical companies, I mean, everyone to provide, to provide opiates for anything. I mean, hey, my, Dr. Money hurts. Oh, here's 30 Oxycontin. I mean, they got all the doctors to prescribe this stuff for other reasons. They, they really hide behind the fact and say, no, we produce this only ever for short-term use, and it's the doctors that, you know, didn't do their job correctly because they're so good at getting suited up with lawyers. I mean, the fact that they're so wealthy, they're, they're like the top wealthy billionaires, and they did it off the backs of people, ruining people's lives. 
and that, that was another thing about that documentary about McKesson was that the DEA and the FDA actually was scared to try to do anything to that company because the FDA DEA did not have enough power or money to stop them from providing opiates to every city in America. I know. I mean, they're 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 criminals. They're 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 running a crime syndicate without, but doing it legally. I mean, they yes, make, they absolutely. make they make money off people's pain, emotionally, mentally, physically. I mean, you almost wonder. I'm sure they have so many lawsuits against them. Right, they do, and they're starting to get more now. But they don't. They're not really going after that. Those huge companies. They're going after the smaller distributors of this of the drugs to try to to stop it. Okay, so you're right in the throes of this lifestyle. And then w- what happens? What kind of, what's your next shock that happens to you that you're like, whoa? I did this from 2002 till about 2008. I mean, it was a pretty long span. And during that time, I you know, kept going down. I spiraled downward. I mean, there was many times I spent four, five, six months sitting in jail, um, get out, you know, and when I sit in jail for that long time, you know, I'm never doing this again. I'm never doing this again. I'm not, I'm not going to be that person. And literally within 24 hours of being out of jail, I'm doing the same thing. It's, there was absolutely no control over it. How easy was it for you to get drugs in jail? I, in the county jail, you couldn't get anything. You, there was no way. Okay, so you had to detox. Yes. So while you're in there, you're like, okay, so what type of programs would help you to kind of, you be thinking, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to make a change when I get out this time. Uh, they would have like an NA meeting once a week or something, but there was there was no actual program or support. And then when they released you, they would tell you, you go to your NA meetings or whatever, but there, there was no support or no, no programs for anything. And was it like a big joke? Did everybody just feel like that? Was everybody like, oh, I'm here for five months, I'll be out again? And was it kind of like expected that when you're a drug addict, you're just always in and out of jail? Yeah, I mean, I don't talk to them anymore, but the guys that I do that with are still doing that cycle. I just found out that I call him a friend, one of the few that I would actually call a friend out of that whole seven, eight years, just went back to jail for doing the same thing. I mean, it's, it's a cycle and that you just get used to it. I mean, that's, that's their lifestyle. That's what they do. Do you think that one of the reasons you kept relapsing was even your confidence in that you could get better? No, I, I wanted to have confidence. It's just, I mean, mentally, my brain, I, I, I couldn't do it. My brain would not allow me to do it. I like the way opiates made me feel, and I still think about it today, but I don't feel like I'm a really depressed person or, you know, anything like that. But an opiate made me feel like things were okay. I could handle life. I could not, I could be happy. I mean, it just, it made me feel like life was okay. And uh, I mean, when you don't have it, it feels like everything's crushing in on you. And so you just, you want to stop that feeling. So you're going to do what you have to do to stop that feeling. I was in jail numerous times for months at a time. And I ended up getting a fight one night and we were both hurt pretty bad. He was hurt a little bit worse. And I was taken to jail with a pretty severe crime. And that's, when I had time to, to <laughs> plenty of time to, to think about some things, the amount of despair and depression and everything was so significant. I, I can't even really put it into words. Um, 
I don't know how to explain it. I mean, it was like darkness. I don't, I don't know how else to explain being locked in a, a cell where you can touch all four walls by yourself for nine months with no human contact. You would hear people, I mean, it was a row of cells, you know, it was, it was a prison. There were different floors and rows of cells and everybody was going through the same thing. And you could hear people freaking out. You could hear people, you know, people killed themselves. People would beat their heads against the wall. People would get put on all types of drugs, you know, so they could just sleep it away. They, I mean, everybody handled it differently, but everyone absolutely, you know, went down into that dark hole. But one of the things that I did while I was in there is I started studying Buddhism. And I think that's, you know, that's what really got me out of that hole. I had a couple of Buddhist pen pals. I just studied, you know, different types of Buddhism. And it, Buddhism teaches you how to control your mind, how to stop those thoughts from just coming in and taking over. And I was able to kind of calm down a little bit and actually make a plan of what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be when I got out. And that's what I did. I actually still have the, the notebooks where I would sit and write for hours, just literally what I did not want to be. I did not want to be a thief. I did not want to be a drug addict. I did not want to be this. I did not want to be that. I do want to do this. I do want to do this. And that's what I did. So you got out of jail the last time. And, and that was how many years? Four years, right? Yes, I got out in, I think, May of 2012. Okay, so then, then what happened next? Um, I, it was rough. I mean, I, you know, I had all these ideas of what I wanted to do and this person I was going to be and all these things I was going to accomplish. And I got out back into this little shitty town and, and none of it happened. I mean, I couldn't get a job, you know, for more than $9 an hour doing some type of hard construction. And, you know, it, it was pretty depressing. And did you, did you always have to tell people that you were in jail? Is that something you have to always say? on a job application? In the beginning, I did. I told them that, you know, this is my story, this is what happened, and here I am to work. And every time I was denied, yeah. no matter what it was, if you put them on that, they're going to tell you, you know, no. So I quit doing that and just, you know, kind of, while, while I was in prison, I after the lockdown, I did end up getting a job. It was called the Ice House, but you deal with the refrigeration equipment. And I actually had been to school before that for refrigeration. So I was able to put that on my resume that, you know, this from this time to this time, I worked for a refrigeration company, which was actually the prison, but I didn't tell them it was a prison. So there was no, there was no lapse in my, you know, my resume or anything. I, I, I was still struggling, still couldn't get a job, still struggling. And I was trying to find out what I could do. And I, I somehow ended up looking into oil fields and I was looking in an oil field in Alaska or Louisiana. And I, one of my mom's friends at the time had told me about Williston, North Dakota. So I put that into a phone, Williston, North Dakota. And the first thing that pops up was make $100,000 your first year. So about seven days later, I jumped on a train by myself uh, with nothing but a couple pairs of pants and a coat and rode a train from Indiana to Williston, North Dakota in the middle of the winter in February and 30 below didn't know anybody, didn't have money, didn't have a place to stay and made it work. I got a job uh, up there literally within, I think 24 hours, making almost $20 an hour. 
And, you know, I was, I was finally able to do those things that I told myself I was going to do while I was in prison. Isn't that lifestyle like similar to people working on the oil rigs and everything that they party really hard, they make money and then they spend it on drugs and. I mean, but that was never anything. My goal was that I wanted to be, my goal, I did heating and cooling for a long time. My goal was to go up there, make that money and then either go back to Indiana, go wherever, and start my own heating and cooling business. That was what my goal was when I went up there. It wasn't to make a bunch of money and party. Like I said, when I was in prison, I, I decided what I wanted to do, and that's one thing I wanted to do, and that's what I was working towards. Okay, so you're out here, you're making some money, and you start saving. Where do you even live? Where do you find to live? <laughs> on, the, on the train ride from Indiana to North Dakota, I got on a dating site and I typed in the address for Williston and the <laughs> couple days it took me to get to Williston, I had a girl that came and picked me up at the train station. Oh my God, that is priceless. Okay. And okay. So did she know anything about your life or she just kind of thought you were cute? Yeah, okay. I, I didn't tell her anything. Um, I, I eventually told her, but I, I didn't, I didn't tell her that before. No. And that was actually the second girl, the first girl I told, and she, uh, she quit talking to me. So I decided not to tell the next one. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so she picks you up, and you get in the car, and did you say, okay, I got no place to stay? Or Yeah, it, it, yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, I, she knew my situation that I just got, I mean, people did it all the time, come up there from wherever they're from and just start working with no place to stay. So, I mean, that's how it worked there. So she knew that I had no place to stay and she took me to eat and we talked a little bit and, you know, just from talking while we were eating, she decided to let me stay at her house for a little while until I got things figured out. And she actually was taking me back and forth to work and everything until I was able to do it all myself. Okay. And so then what, at what point do you decide, okay, I'm going to be on my own now. And um, I, I found my, my current wife now. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one. Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Okay, where did you find her? How did that happen? The job I was working at, one of the, the employees there, I ended up telling the, it was a heating and cooling place. I told the owner and the other people there, you know, not my whole story, but a little bit of it. So they were familiar with it. And one of the employees had a friend that had a friend and we just kind of met and kind of happened. <laughs> okay. Okay. So then you guys fall in love. Do you move in quite soon after meeting? Yeah. Yeah. How long have you guys been together now? Uh, since I, I got to North Dakota in February of 2013, I think. It was like May, June of 2013 until now. And you guys have three kids together. They're her kids. But I mean, they're, they're our kids, but they're, they're hers. Okay, so you met her and she had three kids. That's a lot to take on. <laughs> yeah. I, I always wanted kids, but the life that I led, it, it never happened, and I probably best that it didn't happen. Okay, so now you're, you met your love of your life, your stepdad, to three kids, and are you now 
finishing up and, and starting to launch your own business? No, that's not what happened. Um, I worked a heating and cooling place and it was good pay, but about half of what I could make in the actual oil field. So I went to work for the oil field. Okay. How was that? I mean, cause that's, that's like, that's hard, hard labor. I worked a job that was very, very hard labor, uh, paid good money, but it was your own call 24 seven for 40 days. And usually you would work anywhere from 18 to, you know, 30 hours a shift. And then you would get off your shift and they could call you within 30 minutes or it could be 12 hours. You never knew when they were going to call you. And it, it was just too hard, too hard physically and mentally for me, too hard for, you know, me and my wife. It was too hard for me and her, you know, being kind of newly together. And I got a different job at a different oil field company that ended up to be an amazing company. I mean, they trained me, they paid me well. Uh, I ended up becoming the service manager. It was, it was long hours. It was still physical, but nothing like some of those other jobs. It was, it was more dangerous and you had to use your mind more than, you know, just brute strength and whatever. Doing that job, I was out on the, on a fill job one time and I hurt my shoulder. It was a pre-existing injury, but I dislocated it very badly and I had to have surgery. And when they, when I had to have the surgery and even before the surgery, they of course gave me pain pills. I mean, it was a pretty significant injury and the doctors knew that. And I mean, doctors, you know, give pain pills when you have an injury. And so they were giving me whatever I wanted, not Oxycontin. They were giving me, you know, Percocets or Vicodins by the bottle full and whenever I wanted a refill. And I started researching for natural pain relievers, something that would not take me back down that road of opiates. And then that's when I found Kratom. Okay. So that's how you first heard of Kratom. Okay. Yes. Because I, I, like I said, they were just giving me bottles and bottles of pain pills. And I knew, I, I knew what would have happened. And if I would not have found Kratom, I can guarantee 100% that, I mean, it, it would have all started all over. And where did you, like, what, what Kratom, did you, did you test all the different strains or what, how did you decide which one worked? When I started Kratom, it's been, I mean, years, but it wasn't how crazy it is now. There weren't 50 different kinds. You know, I remember getting a red and a white and there wasn't a red Borneo. There wasn't a Bali. There wasn't all these things. I just got a couple grams of a red and white, tried it. And I actually wasn't impressed with it in the beginning because I thought, you know, from reading what I read, I thought it was going to be something like, wow, it's going to be like a pain pill. And personally for me, it's nothing like that. So I was kind of unimpressed at first. Did it not work as a pain pill for you? <laughs> a pain pill for me gives me that opiate feeling. Yes. I mean, if you okay. say a pain pill, I poor Oxycontin and no, it did not do that. Um, but did it give me relief? Yes. What I find really interesting is when I have Kratom, I don't even want to drink alcohol like i don't know what it does but it, it, it makes you not crave and that, yeah and that's the thing that that everybody notices also i've never been a big drinker but i mean just the desire to drink a beer is not there how long did it take for you to become a believer in it it actually took a little while i mean i i personally used it for you know off and on just to to not use the pills like i said it never gave me that same feeling as a pill so i was not i didn't use it constantly and if I just had pain or I had an urge or a craving or whatever, then I drink some and then not even think about it. It wasn't, you know, a daily thing or 
I had no idea what it would end up turning into. How did you pick the supplier? Because you have your, your creative business, right? What's the name of your creative business? The name of my business is SK Herbalist. When I first found Kratom, uh, I had an American supplier and I just bought, you know, small amounts from him just for personal use or whatever. But still, I was, I'd never intended to be a vendor. Um, you know, I spent a long time researching Kratom, seeing where it came from, how it's processed, how it's grown, all this stuff. And I just made friends along the way. And then after, you know, a year of knowing about Kratom and studying and researching it is when I actually started to, to sell the product that I could get. So it's not called Soap Corner, right? Is it? <laughs> so this is a, a long story. Um, so when we were still in North Dakota and I hurt my shoulder, we decided to open a day spa in North Dakota. I said, a massage therapist. One of the things we did was make our own bath and body products. And one of the biggest sellers, we had herbal, herbal soaps. So we put like lavender, chamomile, different things in these soap. So we decided, hey, let's put Kratom in there. The Kratom soap ended up becoming a huge success. And so we made Soap Corner. Soap Corner was just Kratom bath and body products. Okay, so what, what, what's the benefits of Kratom soap? It helps with eczema and psoriasis. It's not you know, proven to do that. But if you have eczema, psoriasis, dry skin, oily skin, whatever, then it can be very helpful in stopping that, at least stopping the symptoms. I don't know the scientific backing behind it. I do believe that Kratom can have antibacterial properties, but that's how soap corner became successful is because the soap works. And not only that, Fallon, my wife, knows she's good at making these products. Uh, we use good oils. We use good whatever product we put into the soap or the lotion. It's a high-quality product along with high-quality Kratom, and it just seems effective for whatever skin conditions people have. She's also an esthetician, a licensed esthetician, so she's been schooled to she's been to school for you know skin conditions. So we just kind of put it all together, you know, that her training and everything she's learned along with Kratom, and we just made this line of Kratom bath and body products. Do all of them, like the facial mousse and the facial oil, do they all have Kratom in it? Uh, not all of them, but a lot of them do. I would have to, that's her specialty there. I would have to, to see which one, like the Nature's Body Bars, and I believe most of the lotion does have a type of Kratom in it. For the teas here, that's all Kratom, correct? Yes, correct. That's all Kratom. And so for the ones that are in capsules, so you sell some of the powder in capsules. I, I have two strains. I have a red and a white in capsules. I don't sell very much of it. And there's, I mean, there's a few reasons why, but I don't sell much capsule Kratom. Now, why is that? I mean, for, for, for people out there, it's important to know that it's a really horrible taste. So you'd think that capsules would be really nice benefit. It comes down to the, the FDA and, you know, putting it in a capsule. For the longest time, people, you know, sold Kratom as not for human consumption. Yes. Uh, just because it was regulated by the FDA. And by putting it in a capsule, you know, that pretty much means that it's for consumption. So people would stay away from putting it in capsules. What strains do you mostly sell? What are the most popular strains? The chocolate. The chocolate is one, or the super green is another really popular one. What did you say the chocolate's for? A lot of people use it just to help relax or to help with pain, maybe. Okay. And what about yellow tea? What's that best for? That's uh, the yellow Vietnam's another popular one. They, 
the red, white, and green comes from the color of the vein and the leaf normally. So a yellow, it, it depends on the supplier. Sometimes yellow just means that the leaf was dried differently or processed differently, or it may actually mean that it was a, a yellow veined leaf off the tree. So it just really depends. Some of them can be relaxing. Some of them can be kind of more energizing. How do you make sure that your suppliers are not sticking other shit in there? What are some of the shit they could st- stick in? Like what kind of stuff could make it? They could put any kind of plant material in there to make more. Um, one thing about it is, I mean, if, if you want to be a successful kratom vendor, whether you're an Indonesian or American, you've got to have a good product. If you don't have a good product, then nobody's going to be in there going to say everything. Another thing to do is I, I spend a lot of money on testing my product. I spend thousands of dollars testing it to make sure there's no bacteria, there's no E. coli, there's no salmonella, uh, no yeast, no mold, and also making sure that it is what it is supposed to be, making sure that it is actually kratom and not some random plant. And how many suppliers would you be using? That's one thing. If you want to have a good product, the best thing to do is not jump around from suppliers. You need to you know, become friends with these people so you can learn about your product. I, I have three. I have an American that has a really good product. And I have two Indonesians that I traveled and met and I've seen the facilities. I've seen how they do it. I've seen their employees. I met their families, you know, so I know pretty much the whole process of where my product comes from. And even then I still send it to, to a legitimate lab to have it tested for all those things. So what would happen if the FDA puts it as a, a criminal offense? So what, do you think that's ever going to happen? You know, I, it's, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people are fighting and trying to stop that. I I do believe it's going to change a lot. I think that all these Facebook vendors and all these people that sell this random stuff from their house, I think that's either going to go away or at least, you know, kind of be black market and they're not going to be so open about it. I, I'm hoping and thinking that, you know, I don't want huge companies to control Kratom, but at the same time, we definitely need some type of regulation and standards. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, we can, the, the vendors that take this seriously can come together and we can all follow these standards. And those standards are, you know, having a clean facility to do this, not your house, doing all the proper testing, the proper packaging and all that. And I hope we can keep it legal by, you know, treating it as an herbal supplement or herbal, herbal food. How much easier do you think your detox from your addiction would have been if you had Kratom? I think it would have been very beneficial. I think maybe some type of program or someone to help me that had been through it to tell me how to use it, when to use it, what kinds may be better would have helped instead of just here, take this powder. But I I absolutely believe it would help. I mean, I, I see it hundreds of times a week where someone has got off heroin or pain pills or whatever, just because of Kratom. What percentage of your consumer base, would you say, what, what are the different reasons why they're taking Kratom, would you say? You know, a lot of them are because of opiates or whatever, but I would definitely say that is not the majority, uh, maybe even 50% or less. A lot of them are people that have chronic pain and were put on opiates, didn't like the opiates, and so kept looking for other alternatives and found Kratom. A lot of them have uh, depression or anxiety or just chronic fatigue. What strains do people that suffer from depression most order? The greens. The greens seem to have like a mood boost and a little bit of energy. Uh, the greens 
usually my favorite because of that little bit of mood boost, which is what, you know, led me to opiates anyways. Yeah, I would say that for me, out of all the ones I've experienced, I like green. Red gives me a little bit of a headache and I don't feel as great with reds. I don't know why. Right. And it's, it's such a strange plant. When I started, there was a green melee that I liked and I liked it probably for six months. And now I've tried it and I, I can't stand it. I don't know if it's something that's changed with me, if it's something just changed with the way that, you know, they harvest the plants or what. But personally now the, the yellow is one of my favorite because it, it helps with that little bit of, you know, well-being. It does. Oh, interesting. What about for teenagers that are going through hormonal changes and stress and anxiety? I mean, is Kratom something that's safe for any age to use or? On our products, we sell it for 18 and over. And from what I've seen is if you don't need it, don't use it. I mean, just because you have a bad day or because you have anxiety or a little bit of stress or you're tired, there's no reason to, you know, start drinking Kratom every day. I mean, if you have chronic pain or depression or chronic anxiety or opiate abuse, then I, I think this is a great tool to help you pass that. But if you're a regular healthy person that has a bad day, I don't, I don't think you, you know, this, this probably isn't the best option for you. What about pets like dogs, cats? And- um, cats, I guess cats cannot actually digest the plant material. So giving it to cats, Huge no. I've heard a lot of people giving small amounts to dogs, and it seems to help. Yeah, I've heard that too. It also goes back to, I mean, just because your dog is active, you don't need to, you know, you need to take him for a walk. You don't need to try to give him Kratom. Um, If it's an older dog with arthritis or, you know, problems like that, then yeah, I mean, why not? And we also sell Kratom soaps for dogs that have skin conditions. Yeah, it's really, it's really a fascinating plant. I mean, it really is. I mean, I feel like it could change the whole face of the opiate crisis and could really benefit so many people. Yeah, the FDA, DA would let us do this. And also, the, like I said, the vendors need to do it correctly. Just, it, it is somewhat fairly easy for the random person to get a green powdered product from Indonesia. Now, what that is and how sick it is, you know, no one knows. So I think there definitely needs to be some standards and some regulations there to make sure, you know, everybody has what it's supposed to be and it's clean, tested, packaged right and all that. But I definitely believe that be a, maybe not the answer, but a great tool for this. Even the Congressman Wallace of Colorado is publicly outspoken about using Kratom to help with the, the opiate problem. This is the Stand Up Speak Up podcast, part three of our series on Kratom, a leafy plant from Southeast Asia that may very well be able to help combat the opioid crisis. From the stories we've been hearing, it's already doing that. However, Kratom is facing challenges and has come under fire, particularly by the U.S. FDA. But its advocates say the negative claims just aren't true, or at the very least, are not backed up by research. One of the ways we can be a voice for the people who rely on Kratom is to share their stories. We've had many comments on the Stand Up Speak Up Facebook page and our podcast site, and Carla joins in as we share those now. Okay, well, I think we got a lot of great responses, people that had listened to the podcast and had so much support and just want to do whatever it takes. We have here from Darcy Butler. I actually know Darcy. She 
is actually one of, I don't know Darcy, I've never met Darcy, I have chatted with her. She actually is one of the moderators and admins for the largest creative forum. And uh, I always find her really inspiring because she's someone that just is so committed to Kratom. And I feel like she's online 24-7 to support people. And she has so much patience for people that are asking the same questions over and over again because there's a lot of newbies that come on the site. But she here says um, she's a 40-year-old stay-at-home mother of two beautiful girls, a wife of 15 years to my husband who's a small business owner. I'd like to bring your attention to a serious concern about our opiate epidemic. I have many ailments that cause severe pain, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, degenerative disc disease, and issues with depression and anxiety. Due to these pain issues, I've had two surgeries and was prescribed heavy pain meds. My doctor originally prescribed them for a painful cough. At one time, I was taking 200 plus milligrams a day of oxycodone, finishing my prescription well before they could be refilled and buying them off other people. I mean, what Darcy's saying right here, I think is so brave. It's so courageous for her to come out and tell her story because it's so inspiring um, that she's able to be so clean and give so back, so much back to the community. And she continues on saying, my doctor created an addict. I couldn't be normal unless I had them in me. However, nodding off at school functions wasn't exactly normal. I knew that what I was doing was absolutely not the life my family deserved. So I took it upon myself to come off all the heavy narcotics. What would follow was two years of excruciating pain, dark depression, to which I didn't leave the couch, shower, or brush my teeth. I couldn't leave the house, and worst of all, I couldn't be the mother and wife my family deserved. I contemplated suicide many times because I wasn't able to take care of myself and my family. During this time, I saw an episode on Dr. Phil about Kratom that was supposed to help with pain, depression, most of all social anxiety. And now she really you know, believes that Kratom has brought back um, a mother and a wife to her husband and, and daughter. Her daughter's a competitive dancer and she's having to travel and, and socialize and be really active in her life. And she just feels that she would not have this without Kratom. So that's a pretty inspiring story. Next, we get a post from Lauren, and she, at the age of 11, started having severe body aches, pains, and fevers. And she's even, even uh, at the younger age of five, she definitely had some serious health issues, was going doctor to doctor. They couldn't figure out what was wrong. Finally, was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis and was actually told by the time she was 30, she would be in a wheelchair. So the doctors gave her a very bleak outlook. On life, And at that time, it was very serious. But it's pretty amazing that she went on and actually had three children. Yeah, I got married at the age of 21. 22, she had her first child. By 26 years old, she had three children. And by the age of 30, was a divorced mom, supporting the kids all on her own. So it was another challenge for her in life. As she's going to go on to talk about now is that Kratom actually helped her later in life. She said on a pain scale of one to 10, she was at a 15. And then after taking creative within 30 minutes, she said her pain was down to a four. And that really is a common story that I've been hearing a lot. And she just talks about how amazing it was to cook a meal, shower on her own, start to lead a semi-normal life and, and get her blood pressure back in range. And, and I think what's common once again with her is like, what would I do without Kratom? I mean, what is the other option? I go on to these pain pills that we know are worse. 
yeah, people are able to get off those serious meds and actually live a, a normal life. And just off this plant that's, from what we can tell so far, quite harmless. Really, go and read these stories. They're so inspiring. Yeah, and on a lighter side note, this is something that we've been trying to keep in mind, not only with the Crotum series, but every podcast that we do is trying to approach things in a balanced way. We don't have investments in Crotum in any way that we're trying to come on, because I'm afraid we're going to sound like, uh, you know, the TV shopping channel, two of us here. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I pay for my Kratom. I'm, I like, there's no um, side deals here or anything to do. This is just something that I feel so passionate about because I've seen that it actually has changed people's lives. And I wanted to help tell, tell this story. This is what you do with the podcast is get behind causes that are important to you and that we see the good in. And this just happens to be one that from the stories that we've read and the people we've talked to, it seems like we need to be on the side of the advocates for Crotum. You know, how do you read these stories and, and think anything else? Yes. Yeah. And, they, and the stories continue like Bethany um, is next and just talks about all the um, severe pain she is in due to a lot of different chronic health conditions. And she doesn't want to take the pain medications from the pharmaceutical company. She does not want to get addicted to oxys or any of that. She's really tried to keep clean of all those medications, but she was in such bad pain. And then all of a sudden she discovered Kratom and she said, once again, it changed her life. She can tolerate doing like daily living activities. And I know probably we're thinking right now, God, daily living, like that doesn't seem like much of a life. If all you can do is daily living, but I think it's a lot better than being in constant pain and fatigue and people who are in such intense pain, you know, they have very dark suicidal thoughts because can you imagine waking up being in pain, going to bed in pain? When would you ever get a break from pain? There's a story here from Sonia that's interesting that mentions something that we've heard a fair bit. And it's important to know what this, you know, it's the stage that Kratom is in. Nobody can really go out and make any medical claims about what it does. It's mainly based off what people you know, the feedback they've been giving. But one, another one we've seen a lot is what Sonia mentions. She said uh, she's been an alcoholic for over a decade. And when she started taking Kratom, she no longer craves alcohol. Now, that's an interesting one. I'm telling you, Kratom makes you not want to drink. I'm, I'm not a drinker anyways, but literally I have no desire to drink alcohol. And I have a friend of mine who loves to have wine every night at dinner. Like it's like, it's their routine. And they've been using Kratom lately because I just um, offered some to test to see if how it would affect them. She said to me that she hasn't had a drink in two weeks. And this is a person that would drink every night. I mean, I think that's why they need to get more research done and but, you know, all those people that would lose money if people weren't drinking, <laughs> doing drugs, smoking. I mean, there's a whole industry that's like people make money off other people's pain. We have uh, Melissa goes on to tell her story. She, f- she had a fall, was unable to function normally. The doctors wanted her on narcotics, but she was a mom to three babies. So said it wasn't an option. Uh, they left her unable to stay awake or care for her kids. Insurance wouldn't allow her a referral to see a surgeon, so she went in, uh, like, all the people looked around for another solution, found the crotum, went to a responsible vendor, not only relieved the pain, but also increased her energy and mood and decreased anxiety. And that's a real, that's a really big point. I want to go back to that, a, a credible vendor. Please, 
please go to a credible vendor and go on some of the forums. Like one is NACU creative form. That's the one that Darcy is the moderator of and administrator of. Do not just take creative from anywhere. You, you know, make sure that you, you buy from a, a vetted vendor. Right. Because with it being in the stage that it is right now, especially in Canada, it's only legal for sale by licensed vendors and for aromatherapy purposes. So you take something that's being sold for aromatherapy, you don't know what's in it because it's not ever meant to be ingested by humans. So when you go to these quality vendors that are doing the proper testing, that is, you know, basically the best you could get of Kratom at this time. Yes, agree. And I think also what's really interesting about Melissa, she uses only two teaspoons of Kratom a day. And, you know, that, you know, that might cost her, I don't know, max, maybe $50 a month. I mean, it's, it's less than what you would spend on, on coffee. I mean, right. If you go to Tim Hortons here in Canada or Dunkin' Donuts, that's like two bucks a day. You know, I mean, it's, it's really affordable. As we've been saying, such a huge impact on so many people's lives. This is why so many people are so outspoken about it because they can't imagine their life without it. And that's the one thing that Deidre says in her story next. To lose it would be devastating to my life. I know. I mean, I mean, you're right. We sound like we're some infomercial, but I wouldn't be um, talking about it and putting this much energy behind this series if I if I thought you know, it wasn't a game changer for a lot of people. And to see it banned would be a horrific, sad day for so many people. Ashley tells a story next. She started using methadone when she was 15. She was prescribed for pain and then the doctors wouldn't take her off them. Life kind of spiraled out of control. I mean, she had her third daughter. They took custody of that one and, and her two other children as well. So her life had gotten into a very dark place very fast. Yeah. I mean, she once again is saying that she doesn't take any drugs. She just does Creighton, and that's pretty amazing. I mean, good for her, and good for her for telling the story. These stories are so powerful and so inspiring, and I just you know, wish I could see them all and give them a hug just for, for sharing this. Uh, Joe tells a story. He doesn't mention anything about addiction, so we're not, uh, we're not too sure on, on the history, but he just says he's a 44-year-old electrician. He had five knee surgeries on one knee. If it wasn't for Kratom, wouldn't be able to work most days. No, no harmful side effects, and it's definitely not a danger. So he says he's been using it for seven years, and it's making the difference between him working and, and not being able to work. Next, we go to Amber. And, I mean, her story is also not, not that unique. She's now a business owner and wife and a mom of three. If she didn't have Kratom, she doesn't know what would have happened to her. And she sums it up great at the end. To make Kratom illegal would make this wife, mother, innocent civilian a criminal, as well as many others who truly only want one thing, to be happy. Uh, that is really powerful, that's to be happy. And that was one of the big points that they used to refute the FDA's recent announcement because the FDA said we have 44 people, their deaths are connected with Kratom. But the, the doctors basically said, you, do, you can't confirm that. They, were, they had other medical issues. They had other substances in their body. But regardless, if you have a tiny number of people, let's just say hypothetically there was an issue there. What about all these other people that you're going to affect if you took it away? Oh, yeah. This is, I know. That's some serious damage. Serious damage. I mean, you're just going to take away hope for people. People are going to not know what, what are they going to do. You're going to force people to go underground. 
then everybody's taking it from any vendor. And then we can't, you know, and if it has to go underground, there can't be any such thing as vetted vendors because it's all illegal. I mean, it'll just be uh, the worst decision. Well, it's great work that these these groups are doing and, you know, even just individuals that are getting involved to share their comments and make it known what kind of uh, a difference this is making in their lives. Yes. Yeah. Like we just need more and more of these stories shared. And I, I mean, do you see right here? I love this. I'm still in shock and my emotions have been a complete roller coaster. I've been stuck between crying because I can't believe how great I feel and unspeakable anger because our society allows people like me to suffer while making big farmer richer and richer with no real pain relief for patients. That's very consistent. She even says, I am begging you to leave Kratom alone. A big thanks to all those who have taken the time to share their Kratom success stories and get the word out about how important this plant is to so many people. For show notes and resources from this episode, check out standupspeakupblog.com. There, you'll also find a list of trusted Kratom vendors, should you or someone you know possibly be able to benefit from trying it safely. Coming up in our bonus content today, we'll share another story. Plus, have you wondered why Carla and I have been pronouncing Kratom differently? We'll find out after our music selection. I took my love and I took it down Climbed a mountain and I turned around And I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hill While the landslide brought me down Oh, mirror in the sky, what is love? Can the child within my heart rise above? Take it down Yeah If 
if you climb a mountain and you turn around If you'll see my reflection in the snow-covered hill While the landslide brought me down And if you'll see my reflection in the snow-covered hill That was a cover of Landslide sung by a friend of Carla's, Linda Nuska. They go way back to grade two and recently reconnected on Facebook. Also on there was Andrew Hunt on guitar and was recorded by Mauro Giamarco. So we have another story from standupspeakup.podbean.com, one of the many that have been shared with us from Karatom users who are saying that Karatom either changed or saved their life. Uh, Let's see what Jen has to say, Carla. I mean, she's a 40-year-old wife and mother of four. She's got fibromyalgia, lupus, chronic fatigue, med-resistant severe depressive disorder, along with other health issues. She's been on 25 different prescription medications. How is that even possible? How does the human body even take 25 different prescription medications? She's got off most of those meds two and a half years ago and was barely surviving. She was either in bed, in a recliner all day and all night, couldn't shower without help, no quality of life. I mean, that must just been devastating for her kids, for her husband. She even says her husband was on the verge of leaving her, and she was planning on taking her own life. I mean, this is what seems to be a very consistent story. There are so many people that suffer from such severe pain that they even want to kill themselves. And then they discover Kratom, and it basically brings them back from the edge. So she'd heard about Kratom, and she said her husband and, and, and her researched Kratom. He ordered it to try, and it was really her last hope. And the first dose worked so well that she cried, and she couldn't believe it, and that she felt light and pain-free. She got energy. And then she noticed she wasn't as depressed anymore. It was like someone shut the door in my depression and I couldn't open the door to access it. How powerful is that? The rest, they say, is history. Eight months, 28 days ago, I got my life back. That, that brings shivers to me right now. My husband got his wife and partner back. My kids got their mom back. The youngest ones finally got to have a normal active mom. What a huge difference. And, you know, it's good point here that it's not just affecting one person's life it's everybody around them too yeah and that this plant is almost like a miracle plant it is mother nature's way of taking care of us even though we we abuse her she's still there for us and she she's providing it naturally and I think these pharma companies are not going to want to approve because they're going to not want something that could be this powerful and this beneficial to not go through their revenue stream. It's interesting to think about because who says you need 
uh, a pharmaceutical drug or something that was created in a lab to help with anything. Why can't this be an option? Now, I know there are mixed results in terms of dietary supplements and some things that work for some people and some others. You know, there's all kinds of yeah. just a tea that's supposed to do something and maybe it doesn't really do anything to most people. But this is a totally different case where you see the millions of people using it and all these different stories, there has to be something going on There's here. There's something with- to it. And I think you have to be patient. I said that with the plant. I mean, for instance, red and yellow work well for me. White and green make me more anxious. You have to take the time to figure out the strain that best works for you. And I was talking to Josh last night, heard his story earlier, and he owns, um, he's a Kratom vendor, Soap Corner. And he said, you know, there's about 30 strains, only four of those strains really work for him. And I would say for me right now, there's maybe two out of the 30 strains that really are beneficial to me. But then when I had a friend of mine try a strain that didn't work for me, they loved it. So it's very individual. You have to have the patience. I guess we're, we're not getting you out of the, the habit of saying Kratom now. We, we're both stuck on saying differently. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's right. What do you say? No, I say Kratom because it was Dr. Boyer in the first episode that said to you it is actually Kratom. So that was just where I said, okay, I'm going to, I got to say the way it's supposed to be said. But it's said in so many different ways by people in the community. So many different ways. To the point where I, yeah, I wouldn't consider any way right or wrong. But it's just funny that you had kind of just taken off in that direction. (laughs) I know. But you know what? I think you know. Like, I pronounce everything wrong. If there's anything that could be pronounced wrong, I pronounce it wrong. Like, it's actually shocking that I do a podcast because I can hardly speak English. And, I mean, I graduated in English studies from university. (laughs) The funny thing is that, in this case, it's actually okay because it's not just you. We've had other guests say it differently. Everybody says it differently because I actually read it as Kratom first, but it was only because I heard Dr. Boyer say it's Kratom. Then I've been saying it that way. But now I, I can't change it now. I'm, I'm invested. <laughs> I know. So if anyone's wondering about the mystery of why everybody is saying it different, that's why it's because you can pretty much say it however you want. Yeah, that's true. And there's actually the official name for it, which I have. There's no way I could pronounce it because Kratom is kind of like the nickname almost. Metric. Matrigaya Spaciosa. <laughs> I can't even. Way too many sounds in that that are debatable. At least with the Kratom Kratom, there's only a few ways you can interpret it. And that's all for Stand Up Speak Up series on Kratom for now. We'll be keeping a close eye on new developments, hoping for good news, and we'll do a follow-up episode in the future. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.